0: Hello and welcome back to the Never Seen Trek podcast. I'm Sam or never underscore seen underscore Trek on Twitter.
1: I'm Patrick, uh, Anguirus42 on Twitter, um, and I have no uh, talents or uh, credentials whatsoever. (laughs)
2: Uh, I'm Rich Handley, Rich Handley Trek, H-A-N-D-L-E-Y on Twitter. And I like to believe I have talents, but who knows? And yeah,
0: we're back. (laughs) been on a hiatus for about a month now. Uh, Rejig the podcast a bit. So I'll just briefly sort of explain how we're doing things now rather than doing a podcast episode every week, we're doing one every month now. And it's going to be on a, a series, a season of Trek. So for example, this one is on the first season of TNG rather than on a sort of five or six episodes like we were doing before. So it'll be more of a broad overview of the series, what we thought about it, our favourite bits, our least favourite bits. And um, rather than the deep dives that we were doing before. Um, so yeah, I think if we start off with just, if anyone has any particular favorite things about the first series, whether it be character developments, uh, storylines through it or anything like that.
1: Um, well, first of all, I want to observe, you know, I, I, I do think you became slightly cognizant of biting off slightly more than most people would chew. So I'm in favor of the new format. I worry, you know, I'm, I'm, I worry about how much star, how, how too much Star Trek can affect a person because I'm familiar with my own life. Uh, second, it, it, um, it, did, it did come to the
0: point recently where I was on. Uh, I've started my new job recently, and I was on a team's call, and one of my colleagues pointed out that all you could see behind me was just a wall of Star Trek memorabilia.
1: <laughs> um, the other thing is i i, I kind of want to start with a with a super uh, overview um i don't know if that's if this is true today rich but uh lately on most of the podcast we realize that i'm the old man uh i was i was born in 1987 uh just a month or two before next generation started airing um and if any television show has had kind of a foundational effect on me it's probably this one Uh, You know, not that I remember it, but, you know, my parents would like sit down and watch it with me since pretty much my birth. Um, And it was just part of this like background radiation of my, you know, of my life. Uh, And, you know, I really sort of became, you know, when we got to season five, six, seven, I was five, six, seven years old. And I, I started to appreciate more like the storytelling and the characters. And I started looking, looking back. And you know, this is before Netflix, um, the only way you could go back and watch an earlier uh, episode was if you had the physical videotape. Um, in particular, for reasons that we'll discuss, season one um, didn't always, wasn't always in the same syndication package as the as the other ones, even in the reruns. Um, and the only way I could really out, find out about these was, was going back and, and reading about them. There were these guidebooks, there were these illustrated guidebooks and i became in season 1 uh accompanied this really strange place for me because it was like who's who's this tasha yar person uh why is everyone's uniforms weird uh why does jordy have a different job where's riker's beard um and it made me realize that these characters had a fictional history um and uh, my aunt, it turns out, um, Aunt Lisa, who, if she ever listens, awesome, you're awesome, I love you. Um, yeah. She actually did subscribe to the uh, the Columbia House catalog, and she had VHS tapes of every episode. So when we would visit her, I would go back and watch these like season one jewels, um, and you know, and get my get my yar on and things like that. Um, and so what I had to adjust to when I got a little older yet is realizing that most people don't like season one very much. And then getting a little bit older and understanding why people don't like season one very much. Um, but it's always going to have this kind of special place uh, in my heart as being, you know, the trial run for so many things that are, that are still resonating today all the way through Star Trek, Picard, and beyond.
0: Yeah, so you know, I think it was something that surprised me, because obviously, this is what I love about this project is the sort of varying takes on things between myself having no nostalgia for this show at all versus people who've grown up with it. I was incredibly surprised by how enjoyable I found most of Series 1, given the reputation it has. I There, like, there are bad episodes in there, I'm not going to defend the awful episodes, but the vast majority of it was at the very least competent, and the characters are interesting enough that the weaker stories don't ruin it for me.
2: Yeah. Well, I I believe, Patrick, you had said you felt like you were the old man in the group and you were born in
1: 1987. (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) I said I didn't know if it was true this time.
2: Well, I was born while the original series was
1: on the air. (laughs) Well done. if you were, if you're old at 80s, it was born in <laughs>
2: 1987, then I basically uh, just might as well crawl into a
1: box. <laughs> I didn't mean um, to offend.
2: No, no, no. It's actually, I was I just got a good chuckle at it. Because you said you were the old man in the group, but I was like, oh, he No, I pass. said Sam said day, I right? was
1: the old man in the group.
2: <laughs> 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 the um, You know, just to give you some perspective on that then, 1987, when you were born, uh, I had just, um, I was, I, um had just started dating the woman I married
3: Nice.
2: <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> so, um, in any case um, we had an interesting parallel though despite everything I just said because you came into the world right around the time the next generation did well I came into the world in the final year of the original series and my mother was a first-generation fan so while I clearly don't remember it, I can truthfully say that I saw it from the original series, except that at the time I was a toddler crawling around on the floor, so I have no memory of it. Uh, but my mother was a fan, and I grew up watching it. So in 1987, when that first season began, and I was in college, we were both very excited about this. This was, uh, you know, we we had watched the original show, we had watched the animated series, we had watched the early movies. But this was this was a big thing. This was Gene Roddenberry bringing Trek back to TV, and um, and we knew it really well because when uh, the original series, I mean, because um, at least I don't know if how true this was uh say in, in your neck of the woods but around here in new york um it aired a lot you know it was on several times a day so i had seen the original series many many times growing up but when i went into that first season of next generation i i um i had a lot to compare it to you know and i, I, I found myself very quickly noticing things like well this episode is the same as that old episode and this episode is the same as that old episode and I think a lot of fans did that. And right out of the bat, right, right, right out of the gate, we had the Naked Now, which was a, a sequel, but really just a remake of the Naked Time. And uh, and that was just a good example. Encounter at Farpoint introduced Q, who basically was Trelane and was designed as such. So for many people, I think part of the reason they have a love-hate relationship with that first season is while there is a lot of quality storytelling there and some really good acting so derivative. And I think that might be why um, you found, to your surprise, that there was a lot of resistance to that first year. But also, the more important thing is the other seasons are better. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> you know, at the time when season one was airing, um, we loved it. Most people loved it. I mean, it, it was it was so well-received because we couldn't believe we were watching a new show. Even when we cringed and said, well, that one, yeah, that was code of honor. That, that was just atrocious. Uh, <laughs> But um, we still were just excited to get a new show. What's happened over the years is we saw seasons three to seven, and realized how great this show could get. And then we went—you when you go back and watch one and parts of two after that, you go, woof, that was a that was a tough beginning, wasn't it?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's very—it's very very unadulterated Star Trek, like. Um, gene roddenberry's uh, influence on it was never higher than you know tos season one to some extent the motion picture and then tng season one in right. that later time of his life when he had sort of become the star trek guru um and so it's exciting i think for 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 sam and for new people to get into it just because the storytelling is so different than kind of What's the standard uh, 45 minute drama storytelling is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I mean, comparing, since you both compared sort of what was airing when you were born, I think a good comparison when you think a lot of people get surprised when I say, oh, I never really saw Star Trek before I started this project. Just as, just as a bit of context, when I was born, I, I was born about a week after the first episode of, season, of the last season of Deep Space Nine. Ah. so I mean oh, now a, I really feel old. <laughs> I mean you had a couple of seasons of Voyager left and then you had Enterprise and you could it, the show the series was on its decline at that point so maybe that sort of goes some way to explaining why I
2: was not brought up on it so to speak you were born the same year as my daughter oh wow <laughs>
0: <laughs> this ep- this episode is the make rich feel long special
2: yeah I am um... I, I just suddenly became gray-haired in the last 10 minutes, so I don't know what happened. You know,
1: happened. I, I post that, that GIF from Last Crusade a lot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but the, the, what's so interesting about that generational effect, though, is, you know, I have such an appreciation for the original series, but it's from such a historical and a critical and a cultural framework and every frame of that series, I'm constantly like placing into a particular context. This is very very academic um, love, which, you know, and I am an academic and I I love it, Um, but Next Generation was like my oxygen that I breathed Um, and I'm never gonna have like an objective, emotional response, if that is such a thing, uh, to these characters. Um, which is part of the power of of you know star trek picard and some of the references that discovery etc uh puts in and so the way you know the way a lot of people talk about the original series you know very much now there's the next generation generation um and and there's even the the voyager generation which you know the uh late uh, early aughts me would have would have sniffed at that but that's but that's very that's relevant as well in its own way
2: you know the uh, the interesting thing about generational um, what am I trying to say here about a generational perspective? Of Star Trek is because Star Trek reinvents itself periodically um, and goes away for a while and relaunches. There will o- as long as that continues, there will always be distinct eras of fandom. And I think, like you said about how you view the original series. Uh, people coming into it, say with the CBS All Access era or the JJ Abrams films, will view this, these stories that we're discussing today in the same way you, you view the original series or the animated series. Um, and, and thirty years from now, mm-hmm. when people are having Star Trek beam directly into an implant in their head, <laughs> they'll view, you know, they'll view CBS All Access as rather quaint. Um, that's the beauty of an enduring franchise, though is it, it 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 continues if it's worth continuing and the new people who come in hopefully can continue to have a fun fondness and affinity and appreciation for what came before um there there are many different franchises i'm into and what came to mind while you were talking just now was godzilla i grew up in the seven i mean, i was born in 68 but i'm a child of the 1970s when all the classic godzilla films were airing so i built an appreciation for those early however they were 20 years old and so I came into it seeing them as from like oh that's kind of funny these are older movies and I'm getting a kick out of watching these but I I would imagine that for people who were 20 (laughs) this was the stuff that they watched in the theaters when they were younger and so my appreciation for Godzilla will never be what theirs was even though I love it because I simply didn't live in the fifties, uh, and the same is true for for all of you, basically, with uh, with the original series, um, and for the next group of people, with the next who you, who are children now. When it comes to the ninety, the eighties and nineties era of Star Trek, you know, hopefully each group can appreciate what came before because it it is very easy to look at the original series now and even the next generation and say, "Man, that was quaint and naive compared to Star Trek today." Um, but there's a, there's something amazing about about those early s- stories and and i would argue that the originals that the first season of the next generation is better than most people give it credit for um, when uh when sam was first posting about not having seen the show um, I, I joked around a lot about you know oh god just stick with it until season three and oh no you're watching home soil oh god you know but but the truth is i um I do have a great love for these stories. I don't have a great love for Code of Honor. In fact, I would like to see Code of Honor burned with fire. (laughs) For the most part, I have a great love for these stories. And whatever flaws and weaknesses they have, they did an amazing job of bringing Star Trek back. And if it weren't for that first season, we wouldn't have not just this podcast, but we wouldn't have the CBS All Access pair because Star Trek would just be a footnote.
3: No, absolutely. I, I think I think we can
0: probably all agree that um that Code of Honor is is the episode we just forget about <laughs> in this series.
1: There's there's a very good well first, first of all I wanted to say it's so funny you bring up Godzilla because, you know, I, I that that's one of my one of my big four, Star Trek, Godzilla, um in my franchises. So but you know, we'll be here all day. I could do a Godzilla <laughs> podcast. Um what I want to uh, what I want to mention about that uh, code of honor specifically is uh, the only thing that really needs to be said about it is uh, is Will Wheaton's uh, blog that he did years later, a sort of an impromptu production diary, um, and how the the director that day, whose name escapes me for the better, was the one who insisted that you know all the people on this planet need to be played by black actors, and the incredible like tension and displeasure on set. Um, from the regulars and from just everybody.
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of people blame put the blame on this and the director it, it, to sort of defend the writer, but I've always found it amusing that the writer went on to write the most racist episode <laughs> of SG one
1: Yes, yes, Emancipation. Yeah. It's almost the same episode. Beat it is Beat.
2: exactly the same story. <laughs> it, it, it's an attractive blonde woman who, who, who catches the eye of a, of a misogynistic leader of a stereotypically racist culture based on earth culture uh and and is captured and and like it is i mean astounding the only real difference between the two is the fact that they didn't put yar in a uh in in a in a like a real cleavagey outfit that's basically the one difference so arguably emancipation took it a step further and made it worse um so in addition to the racism, they added just blatant sexism to it. Uh, so, so, you know, while I'll, you know a lot of the blame for the fact that this was a stereotypically out African culture falls on the director, the writer needs to take the share of blame because this person went on and wrote the exact same story about Mongolians.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, there's just a, a really wide line between uh, poor, yeah. poor and defensive. And yeah, exactly. we, need, we need not speak any more about that. We also kind of talked about how The Naked Now is a remake of The Naked Time and how, for for better or for worse, um, you know, I think Gene really wanted that because he thought Naked Time really unlocked the original characters and he wanted to Mm -hmm. sort of, like, get to that. Um, And it wound up being so close that the writer of The Naked Time actually got residuals, which is nice. It's it's hard hard to get residuals out of Gene Roddenberry, but (laughs) somehow they managed it. I, I think it's because
2: the, the case was so obvious that had it gone to court, we'd lose. <laughs>
1: so I, th- I think the highlights of this kind of first first quarter of the season are the pilot, um, almost exclusively because of the main characters in Q. It's not a great story. Um, but then where no one has gone before. And those are both big cosmic galaxy brain stories that there's no way to punch or phaser your way out of. You know, the incredible boldness, um, and I like Farpoint more than I guess most people admit to liking Farpoint, um, but of just in the first like 10 minutes of your show, God shows up and says, I'm gonna destroy humanity if you don't prove to me that, uh, you know, humanity's great. And, you know, it, most of us don't go through our lives probably thinking humanity is that great. That's true. So it's, Well, the
2: idea of, of gods putting humans on test is very much a staple of Star Trek. And we saw it in the original series with Trelane, with the Metrons. I mean, it, it happened a lot. And... Uh, and so yeah, it's not surprising to me that his first story was about a god saying humans suck. It tended it tends to be his thing.
1: Oh sure. I mean the the theme yeah. was there, but I think this is sort of like the platonic expression of that theme mm-hmm. and, and Q being established as a recurring character and spoilers, essentially building in bookends to the entire series. Um, yeah, be careful what you say there. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. all well I mean and and you know, and it's it's and it again resonates even in the series that they're making today. Yeah, um, yeah. on the strength and, of... and you mentioned
2: where no where no one has gone before. That one is a yes. personal favorite of mine. I, yes. I love that episode. And again, to to, to be slightly spoilery, but not, not giving away anything, much like Encounter at Far Point, it will have re- reverberations in later seasons. Um, it's it's one of the very few first season episodes where they openly made sequels to which is great um but i I just i love the character of the traveler and i'm sure you probably know i don't know if sam does that eric Menyuk was one of the people um who had uh auditioned for data so Mm -hmm. imagine how different the show would have been if the if data looked like the traveler
0: (laughs) oh wow yeah that's that would have been quite different yeah yeah
1: Speaking of speaking of, of data, the one of the and you know I, I always catch your live tweets when I can, Sam. Um, and one of the great pleasures that I derived from them recently is is appreciating just what Brent Spiner's bringing to the character. Yes. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and and recognizing too that there wasn't nearly as much of like a like a canon, um, for him to appeal to. Uh, you know, there there wasn't sort of the definitive sort of android story hadn't been told. They're really kind of kind of creating it, uh, and and you know he's just in he, he, he it's so hard to separate again because I grew up with this character, but like he's he's in contact lenses in 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 white makeup, and they're like oh yeah that's an android, and and he's got to build that whole performance. And, you know, and they, they do a decent job, especially later, of backing him up with the practical effects and, and creating... There's a bit of this in data lore, uh, too, but but yeah. in, in creating that illusion. But, you know, all day, every day, it just falls on Brent Spiner. Um, and just, you know, wow. <laughs> no,
0: absolutely. I mean, like you said, I pointed out a few times in the live tweets, how, like, seemingly quite simple scenes, at, like... But they must have been so difficult to act in the way that he does them i, like, I can't think of any off the top of my head but my True. memory's not the best but he he does a really good job of of consistently portraying it like you never look at that and go that's a man in makeup yeah well, you know,
2: yeah one of the things data uh, D- data is um is one of those characters in star trek and, and many of the shows have them the outsider character who offers the uh, the audience a a reflection of humanity by not being part of humanity. And obviously the original was Spock, but then you've got Data, you've got Odo. You know, there, there are several different ones throughout the course of the show, uh, the, the franchise. And these characters tend to be the fan favorites. I mean, everybody loves Kirk, but I would argue that without Spock, Star Trek might not have lasted. And oh, I would wow. say the same thing for Next Generation. Everybody loves Picard, but I think Data is the one that really brought that show to, to its height. I think that some of the best moments involve Brent Spiner, um, which is in no way to put down Patrick Stewart, who I, I'm absolutely in awe of Patrick Stewart. But I, I think that uh, I think Brent Spiner had the unique role of having to create a, to create a character who consistently we're told doesn't have emotions. And yet, elicits some of the most emotional reactions from us. And that's, I don't know if that's necessarily true in season one. So, Sam might be going, What is he talking about? (laughs) It's there, though. It is there. And in later seasons, he's the character you really, really care about. I think, though, I think with you saying that, that does bring
0: us on quite nicely to what was probably one of my favorite bits of the whole season, as much as it was a very painful episode, uh, which is you say he has the most sort of emotional scenes. The scene at the end of Skin of Evil between him and Picard. And mm-hmm. like that episode, I, I, I have opinions about that episode. And I think, <laughs> I think most I, people do. <laughs> I think the last, the last 10 to 15 minutes is probably the best 10 to 15 minutes of the first season of Next Generation. It's just a shame that it came after the first 35. Yeah. <laughs>
2: You know, you might be the first person who's ever said anything about that episode as the best thing of the first season. I, uh, and I, I think that's I think that's amazing. I, I, I love the idea of just how varied opinions are. You know, there's probably somebody somewhere who says Star Trek never got better than Symbiosis, Home Soil, <laughs> and Angel <laughs> One. You know? No, no, so, no, but I, like, but but you see, I don't see, know that is... I want to talk to that person, but I mean that you know, there's probably somebody who says that. So I love the fact that your favorite moment comes from the end of an episode most people just sort of shrug at.
1: But <laughs> see, but see, uh, Sam is Sam is used to taking out the 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 sifting out the dross though, because you know, thirty five minutes of crap and fifteen minutes of brilliance. Isn't that like every other Doctor Who? <laughs>
0: okay, okay. <laughs> I thought we, I thought we were going to make a Final Frontier dig then, but Doctor Who works too. But no, I think like as as much as like. It is a controversial episode and i hate not only how but why they had to kill off yar because of the whole sort of background information yeah. behind the scenes but the way that, it, that like the whole eulogy scene and the conversation between data and picard at the end um where he's sort of asking whether he's misunderstood the point of of the memorial service it's just it's it's easily, I think,
2: if not the best, definitely one of the most emotional scenes in the first series. Sure. You know, I have to agree with you. I, I, I've ne- I'll be honest that I've never really liked the eulogy itself much, just because some of what Yara says I feel is unearned. Will Riker, you make me laugh, but there's not a lot of scenes in which Riker's cracking yeah. jokes and she's laughing. So it was things like that that I go, well, it, it's not the fault of the writers or Denise Crosby. They didn't have a lot of material to work with before she died um but i do agree with you that the exchange between picard and data is unusually good considering the episode it's in yeah
0: yeah no i I think that's fair i think and you're not you're not wrong i think i sort of looked at it as this character was underdeveloped but this is what they'd have been saying had we had the development so it made more sense to me from that perspective but but you're right it's not the, the context isn't
2: there in the in the show itself Did you find it as amusing as I did that this is the head of security and instead of having any of her security members there besides Worf, she has a little boy who's not related to her. I, I understand that the whole paid cast needs to be there, but I just that just struck me as amusing that of all the people who were most important to her, it's Wesley who hardly has any scenes with her. Well, this is season one of TNG, so Wesley's still basically gone at this point. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's it's you know, it's very much a. It's one of those meta things and, you know, when I was, when I was a, a kid, you know, that sort, those sort of um, critiques of the storytelling, like, you know, they really resonated with me. Like, it was all like logic, 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 plot, plot, plot. Um, but the, I actually think Skin of Evil is a series highlight um, because they took, you know, a crappy concept that should never have had to happen this way, but this is what we're locked into. You know, we've, gotta, we've got to lose this character. Um, and I think they, the, the art that kind of spun out of it was, you know, the, the, the eulogy, it's not a eulogy for Tasha, it's, it's, it's Denise with the cast.
2: Yes, yes. And And actually, I think that on that ground, it works.
1: Yeah, and, um... And, what I will
2: say, oh, I'm sorry, I cut you oh, off. Oh,
1: um, no, and I, and, I, and one of the things I was thinking, and you know, I didn't think we were going to leap ahead to the end of the season this fast, but but <laughs> but some some uh, I I signed up apparently um, to do the uh, live commentary for uh, Measure of a Man in season two with um with with Sam and. Uh, what what one of the things that's striking about that episode and you know and i won't i won't go into it much more yeah. is is little bits from the first season that don't seem all that good or all that important uh or even that you might have think actively sucked in the way that they were done uh really yeah. come back in a big way there and measure
2: of a man might be in my top five for the whole series so it's amazing that it's within the first two seasons
1: yeah yeah i i I think i tweeted um not to get ahead of myself too much i think i tweeted that it's it's the only candidate for best episode in tng season one and two i was not talking best episode of tng i would agree i would agree
2: (laughs) but anyway
1: we should probably break out of 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 this trap and and talk about some other stories that stood out to us um
2: before we do that, though, I did want to say one last thing about Skin of Evil, rather than us coming back to Skin of Evil.
1: Yeah.
2: Which is, because here I was, you know, sort of slogging it off. But I have to give credit for one thing in that episode. For me, the stuff that works best isn't the stuff with Tasha. The stuff with Troy in the shuttle yeah. works really well. Absolutely and um, it's some of troy's best moments in season one because troy is a character in season one that the writers and marina didn't have a handle on yet the writers weren't sure what to do with a counselor who's sitting on the bridge and so they 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 a lot of time is spent in season one with her saying, Captain, he's hiding something. Well, counselor, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, like there's a, there's a lot of that before they finally got a handle on her and she became a great character. But that stuff in the, that that stuff in the in the, the in the um, between her and Armis, I think, is the most compelling aspect of the episode. So I have to give credit where it's due.
1: And that is fascinating because I 100% agree. But it's really fascinating when you think about the casting switch yeah, that marina Curtis was brought on the show based on her ad- audition for Tasha, or yeah, Macha, yeah. her yeah, different character that would have been! Yeah, and, Masha. And, and Crosby was brought on because of her successful audition for Troy, and yeah. then during the pre-production and rehearsals, they switched their roles. Um, oh wow! It, yeah, and it would have been such a you can you can easily imagine almost makes more sense to imagine you know a case where both the character and the actor didn't work um of having denise crosby lose the show and take troy with her and then you know having uh, marina stay on as as the tough security chief which you know obviously we all like um and it's such a different show if you do that better, worse, hard to say, but that would have been such a like, oh, this strange eighties thing of bringing on the counselor and then it didn't work out. As opposed yeah, yeah. to now the really unique character of counselor Troy.
2: Yeah, and I grew I to love Troy. I, you know, at the beginning I, I thought her scenes, like I liked the actor, but the scenes to me were rather redundant. She often would just point out things uh, and then Picard would just disregard her advice, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that it It's a fascinating, a fascinating idea. What if, what if they had not switched roles, huh?
0: Mm. I think I, I agree with regards to like, obviously I've not seen going forward the character getting better, but with regards to Troy not necessarily being the most developed character, I don't think. But I think it it does that does begin to change towards the end of season one. Yes. I think. I think i i I won't dwell on the episodes themselves too much but you have the scene in uh we'll always have paris between her Mm -hmm. and uh crusher you have the scene in conspiracy between her and picard
3: Mm
4: yes you have the scene in the episode whose name i can't remember between her and geordie um which i can't remember which episode that was
1: yeah she's just she's just building um she's just building and building and the 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 conflict was really between i think the writers between and with both her, her concept in the show and the way and what marina wanted to play um, yeah. and one thing that's always stuck out at me is in, in an interview she said you know of course in the context of did i get sold a bill of goods or what but when she switched into the character of troy and talked to gene about her for the first time gene roddenberry told her you have to understand troy is smarter than spock and she's like you know wow like this is my responsibility this is the character i'm bringing in and then she reads the script so it's just like oh yeah
2: she's been on the record a lot about the fact that in the first few seasons they just kept putting her in bunny suits and she she was a young actor at the time she you know she was grateful to have the work but a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of the way that Troy was marketed in the beginning was based on her beauty, and it yeah. it, it was too. It was it was not very. It was, it was to the detriment of the character, and it wasn't fair to her because she was a better actor than that.
1: Yes, and Star Trek took a long time to grow out of that.
2: Yeah, and we all know who to blame
0: for that in this era. No, um, <laughs> um I was going to say something. It's completely gone. Should we should we move on to maybe one of the less enjoyable episodes
1: well i was wondering if we could we could loop in kind of the the concept of the ferengi and that we sort of talk about last outpost and battle um that's that's a good shot
0: actually yeah let's talk about the ferengi
1: which i like both of those episodes actually uh, a fair amount um while definitely acknowledging that the when we finally meet the ferengi themselves in like act three or four of the last outpost it's a misfire um, the, the
2: original uh version of the ferengi is just weird. It, it it's it's it just seems like they're like coked up monkeys.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 off putting. It's off putting it's in the wrong yeah. way and I think production almost immediately realized it.
2: Well, what's really funny is if you go back to encounter a far point, the references to the ferengi talk you know like implies that they eat their enemies for example. Like like they're not at all what you would picture. You know, these these, these little uh, you know five foot tall monkeys on cocaine. They're not. That's not what you picture when you hear. They're just they're described in Counter kind of Farpoint as if they're formidable,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, I just don't. You know, it. But I do find I actually don't dislike Last Outpost. There are aspects of it I like, mostly involving the portal. I find the portal character fun. But the battle is genuinely good, and I and I mm. know a lot of people who hated that episode, and I don't understand it because the f- scenes between Picard and Damon Bach are wonderful, in my opinion. I think that's a highlight of season one.
1: Yeah, Patrick Stewart actually has said in interviews, and like you know, people have like boggled about it, but he said, you know, my favorite villain, and this is in the context yeah. of you know, I want him to come back. Um, my favorite villain is Damon Bach, um, yeah. and I I like. I like Bach, I like the motivation, I like how it ties into, you know, it. I think it's an important aspect of Picard's character, and it comes up a couple of times that he's not squeaky clean. You right. Know, he's done things he regrets, and that's why he has this texture to his character, um, because he's made these life-and-death decisions, and that's why he's in command of the Enterprise. Um, and so he, he has to carry that weight. And then I really like, because, you know, I think it's a at the time it was kind of a unique... Uh, storytelling point that Damon Bach has this incredibly human relatable motivation and then he's foiled because that's not what he's supposed to be doing as a representative of the Ferengi military you know he's cashiered out because he doesn't follow he doesn't follow their guidelines and it's such an interesting cultural point to make Um, and I think that's what helps the Ferengi transcend a little bit like they're obviously a very critical parody of Reaganism, which is right, important. Right. But then the battle establishes that they're people too and that, you know, this 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 belief system that we might not agree with, but there's something consistent and meaningful about it to them.
2: You know the uh, the Ferengi I, were uh, in their in their earliest incarnations were not popular. In fact, after Last Outpost, frankly, I'm amazed we ever saw them again. Mm-hmm. But just because the, the the critical reaction to them, I know you, this is where my being older comes into play. I remember people just being aghast at how bad the Ferengi were in the Last Outpost, oh. and we were like, "Wow, is this the recurring enemy? I never want to see them again." You know, and. It, uh, but something changed after the battle. A lot of people thought, huh, I guess they could be made to work if they're not idiotic. Like, they I, like got I, uh and it's largely because of the portrayal of Damon Bach, and to a lesser extent, the first officer too. What, what I found fascinating about that portrayal is that the reason, you know, we this, this is not the first nor the last story where there's a renegade commander who's doing his own thing and his people aren't happy about it. What's interesting about Bach is that the motivation isn't what it usually is. I mean, the the motivation of the first officer is not what it usually is, which is, my commander is a, you know, he's a, he's a warmonger. He's creating war where, where, where you know, he's going to put us all in danger. No, it's simply there's no profit in this, which is a unique perspective. I, I find it fascinating. I, I think the reason I like that episode is the idea that a man who has grown up in a culture where, where money is everything. And his being a maverick actually makes him more like us instead of a Ferengi because his his motivation is one that isn't profitable. It's personal. Whereas in Ferengi culture, personal is less important than profit.
1: Yeah. Well, everything, everything reacts to circumstances. I think last outpost and the battle are both clearly written as, you know, these are going to be our Romulans and then, you right. know, immediately these air and they're like, well, shit. Um, but but <laughs> which is it, but, why they're
2: so different on Deep Space Nine. They yeah, but they room. don't.
1: But they don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. They think, exactly. okay, the, these are the Ferengi. We established them. Maybe in a meta sense, they're not going to be our Romulans. What are we going to do with them? Um, yeah, and,
2: because they took what worked and ran with it. They basically said, yes. "We we're gonna we're gonna start again. This is what you know. Maybe th- th- there are certain characteristics of these two episodes Ferengi we can work with." But how about from now on, we focus on other things besides the military. We therefore bypass this, which is why Deep Space Nine's Ferengi tend not to be military officers. And I think they become one of the greatest things about Deep Space Nine. The Ferengi stories are wonderful. And I never thought I'd say that in 1987.
1: Yeah. Well, the cojones the of having your first spinoff of Next Gen. And yeah, our, we have an alien Ferengi regular character. Yeah, it was
2: (laughs) astounding at the time. People were shocked. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And then he turned out to be everybody's favorite, other than Odo. So go figure.
1: (laughs) All right. Uh. Well, we talked a bit about Q. Um. I always thought it was interesting that they established him as recurring, like right away. Like the pilot, they must have figured out the pilot's going to work, and it's like, okay, let's let's do Q. Um. For all that the episode itself is not amazing like it's probably the worst Q episode all told um but it still really establishes as you know this is the guy who's going to come back and, and and be our guy so that's the value of that um, wait are you
2: referring to encounter a far point or hide and cue as the hide, worst?
1: hide and Q. oh okay okay, okay um i mean unless you guys really disagree with that um <laughs> well i
2: i actually don't dislike it but the the soldiers are ridiculous mm. <laughs> yeah i mean obviously i've only seen two q episodes so far but yeah it, it's a lot better you're gonna it, there's some extraordinarily well-written and well-acted q episodes coming I, yeah, i'm looking forward to them to be honest yeah. Titan Q is not indicative of
0: what's coming. <laughs> no.
1: So, but um, even then,
0: it had some interesting things to say. Like, it was an interesting concept, and it, a, lot of, a lot of it didn't work, but there were, like, the whole scene at the end where with uh, Riker on the Riker bridge on the, is yeah. a really interesting scene.
1: Um, I, I probably the most defining aspect of, of that episode and really of the first season when it comes to Q though, is the mono on mono showdown in the, uh, ready room with Shakespeare, mm-hmm. you know, as, yeah. uh, I, I say with sincerity, what he said with irony. Um, yes. and that is, is the kernel, I think, because in Farpoint, you know, Picard wasn't afraid of Q, which itself is striking and 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 so so important but there's still that tension of like you know this guy is is gonna imminently do me and my entire species serious harm um and then hiding q is more like you know i'm q you know respect me because i'm powerful and picard is just like nope and that's that's why q keeps coming back
2: that scene that you mentioned the shakespeare scene ends up setting the Q card relationship to date yes mm-hmm. and which is why they get better after Hyde and Q <laughs> because it's one of the few moments in Hyde and Q that actually works really well and they realized it they realized I think early on that Q is fun but what makes it so fun is the interactions between John Delancey and Patrick Stewart yeah, and you... so it became about that
1: yeah, you don't really get a lot of Q and Riker interaction after this like, just one-off gag. Although you do get
2: some Q and Worf scenes later on that are hilarious. Yes. Yes. But I think what's great about, about Q coming back as often as he did on the various shows is the writers uh, experimented with which ones worked best, mm. and it became clear which ones they thought it worked. I, I would say that the uh, the most fun they had were scenes with Picard, war for Data, those seem to work the best, and um, and so they 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 seem to zero in on that.
1: Yeah. Well, and those are sort of the uh, in in retrospect, certainly not at the time, um, but in retrospect, I've heard those called TNG's big three. Yes which is really gonna seem confusing to you, Sam, with uh, Worf's role in season one, uh, really not becoming clear until Heart of Glory, which is just, which like warp speed is like, okay, here's Worf now.
2: Well, you know, when the show began and and they weren't expecting Yara to leave, Worf was a secondary character. Um, And without Tasha in the security chief role, Worf had more to do uh, because he wasn't just the token outsider um, who made funny comments and got his ass kicked a lot. <laughs> it was like, you know, there was uh, like, he, he had an, a, 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 an authoritative position and, and he emerged as a, as a fan favorite pretty damn quickly after that.
1: And the, the, the commitment of Michael Dorn, I think at every turn to, you know, to, to become a better actor, you know, you see him learning yeah. on the job almost in, in, Always being so assured of the, the dignity and the importance of that character is is really something to watch. Which again, we're we're stepping ahead. So my yeah. my, my, my goal was I've got you know I've got a list of season one episodes on my uh, screen right now, and sort to identify like you know what what what's being established here that actually becomes really important. Um, and I can talk about a couple of uh, the holodeck episodes too. Uh, The Big -hmm. big Goodbye, and then 11001001. I think in different ways, both are extremely foundational episodes when it comes to the holodecks and holograms.
2: And they're both just such good stories, too. Absolutely, yeah. I was just about to say the same thing. They're both incredible. I think
0: they helped to set off the holodeck as being, so it's something that you can go off and have a have an, an entirely separate adventure from the show from the sort of setup of a ship in outer
2: space. Absolutely. In and effect like they it. established it so well that they started relying on it too much and I think you'll notice that over time there's a lot of holiday stories. And but but these two stand out as some of the best even compared to what comes later because they were innovative and they were the, they were the tone setters and it's just I mean so the scenes between Riker and Minuet are great. The concept of the binars is great. Um, you know the uh, the idea, the whole uh, uh, gumshoe setting of Big Goodbye is great. The, these two episodes work uh, in a way that was um, better than some, in my opinion, some of the holodeck stories that will follow.
3: Sure. I will.
2: What okay, I, will I will say break, is
1: uh, of all sorry, the. Of all the sort of sins of holodeck episodes in general, in retrospect of all of Star Trek, um, what I really yeah. like about it is it let them stop landing on all those inexplicable Earth-like planets.
2: Yeah, or or as Stargate One, uh, <laughs> you know, with uh, every episode, every planet weirdly looks like Colorado. You know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> or Vancouver rather. Yeah. You know, one of the things we should point out, since we're discussing this, is that. Next Generation, one of the things that people really went nuts over when this show started was the concept of the holodeck when it was introduced in Counter Farpoint. But it had actually been introduced on the animated series. Yeah. And so this was basically him taking a concept he'd already done and saying, you know, I really like this concept. Can you imagine how cool it would be if I did it in live action? Because it's one thing to have, you know, a 1970s cheesy-looking cartoon scene um, but, wow, what could we do uh, if 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 we didn't really have any limits, you know, in terms of uh, um, any scene could be done and we could film it. And um, they do some extraordinary work with it. I, I think they, I still say that they did too many. It became too, especially on, you know, on, on one of the other shows, and I won't say which one because it's a little spoilery, but one of the other shows I think was way too reliant on the holodeck. Um, but uh, these early holodeck stories were great. And when they, and I can order, uh, offer some perspective on first viewing here. When they aired, they were very well received. Both of those went over well with fans.
1: Well, and I think it's such a, a, a strong expression of you know, TNG as this kind of wish fulfillment future. And, and that mm-hmm. meant a lot to me as a kid. Um, but, yeah, but the idea that you know at some point our entertainment will become so engrossing that it'll be, you know. Okay, so we'll we'll go now. You know, now we've got to go on real adventures, cause cause what's left almost. Um, but that idea that you really could could kind of escape from reality in a way that wasn't, you know, drinking or drugs or whatever. Okay, so um, might have noticed a bit of a jump cut there. It
0: is something like three weeks later now because we had all manner of technical issues and scheduling issues and everything. But we are back and um, hopefully going to finish off the back half of this episode uh and i think the next thing we were going to talk about was going to be data So if someone wants to jump in there and start us off
1: sure uh data lore is uh where data discovers lore his his twin brother um i think there's a couple different uh ways you can spin off this episode uh one it establishes kind of the series tick for uh Brent Spiner doppelgangers which will uh, continue to be important in various and different ways Uh, you know obviously Lore himself being a very memorable character Uh, also interesting um, and this came up when we were watching Measure of a Man is how the episode soft retcons everything we knew about Data before it and then almost immediately gets soft retconned by the Data episodes after it which leaves it in sort of a strange uh, limbo as far as data's nature and finally uh for being an episode that i consider terrible and not terrible in like sort of the boring way of a lot of season one episodes it's it's like mystery science theater clown shoes terrible
0: oh dear
4: <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think it was that bad i mean <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I, um, I, I would really be interested in hearing why it's so terrible. I mean, look, it has problems. I don't think anybody would say that this was a crowning achievement of season one, but I am
1: curious. I mean, I guess to me, it really comes down to the fact that the whole third act is an idiot plot. And I don't think the next generation can sustain interest in a story without the competence porn. <laughs> Like, because we appreciate these characters because they're they're good at their jobs. Um, and when all of a sudden everybody just like shifts into fool mode. Like, how could Lore have possibly impersonated Data? He only looks identical and uh, is better at uh, convincing people of things and has no discernible conscience. Shut up, Wesley! Yeah, I mean, that's a
2: valid, it's a valid statement. There are are times when the next generation's writers in the early part of the show, I mean, and some parts later, but largely in the early part of the show, would sacrifice the credibility of a character just to move a plot. And, And I do agree with you that that is one of the problems of this episode.
1: It is a Brent Spiner acting showcase, and it's a character showcase for lore and therefore for data um but i dislike almost everything that every other character does throughout the entire episode
2: the thing that i like about it is that without this episode uh, and 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 trying not to spoil too much for our our, our, our the, for for your fellow host um without this episode we might not have gotten the long string of brent spiner characters we got because yeah, that's what I was mentioning yeah.
1: before the Brent Spiner doppelganger. Exactly, kind Be- of a, because they realized recurring... he could
2: have fun with it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, and we mentioned before just how good Spiner is, and almost from the very start, the incredible insight that he that he brings to this role, um, and absolutely, it's it's great for that.
4: I mean, think it, it's nice to i mean obviously like you say going forward with these characters as well i'm sure i'll look for i'm looking forward to that but it's nice to see brent spiner getting a chance to fully like show off just how good an actor because he is a brilliant actor and as obviously as as technically difficult and as impressive as playing data is it is playing a very sort of straight and not as well emotionless debatably and we can touch on that in later seasons um but it is very much a sort of very straight and monotonous character almost. Whereas getting to see him sort of fully throw it out there and be brash and it's 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 really great to see. Great I think. To see I think. You know, because, one of the, you, I
2: don't know if you were, if you were aware of this, but the uh, data was partly based on a previous Roddenberry character called Questor from a, a pilot for a TV show that that was never made called the Questor tapes, and it's really fascinating to watch the Questor tapes, and then see Brent Spiner as Data. I don't know whether Spiner himself even watched it, but the the um, the concept has its roots in Questor, and it, it, it's fascinating to see an evolution of this character, and I actually, I can't even imagine that Robert Foxworth, as good as he is, would have been as interesting an android as Brent Spiner is. Because he no, was the I one know, who played. It's...
1: I I haven't seen Questor, I'm familiar with it largely from one of uh, Gene Roddenberry's taped lectures uh, that's floating around out there, Um, and from that I realized that a key plot point in The Measure of a Man, which again, we just uh, recorded our commentary for that, was clearly inspired by the the beat from the Questor tapes. I'm not sure where it happens or how important it is to the story, but when the android and the woman become intimate, it seems clear that there was cross-pollination there.
2: Yeah, the, uh, for those who haven't seen it, Quester Tapes is one of a handful of Roddenberry pilots, Genesis 2 and uh, a few, few others, um, that, uh, um, that never made it to series but are available out there either officially or unofficially. Oh, sorry either officially or unofficially and the Questor tapes was about a Android who um, had incomplete memory tapes and he was trying to find his reason for existence and his creator and um, and you mentioned the intimacy and you know we there's a, 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 in the first season and again later on data experiments with physical intimacy so there's definitely there's definitely a, a connection there and I, I it's fascinating I, I recommend watching it. it's a pretty good story.
4: I will just say, um, whilst you were discussing that in the background, I did just Google Quest or Tape just to have a look, and uh, Mm -hmm. based on the imagery of what I can only assume is the android, uh, I think if I do watch it, I might get nightmares. (laughs) um, I I will say Brent Spiner is is much more palatable to the eye than the makeup on this character. (laughs)
2: Well, the interesting thing is that Foxworth would go on to be a character on Star Trek, um, and so it, it, it's a it's a case of Roddenberry working with the same people many times as he often does.
1: Well, it was this was after Roddenberry's life, but yes, and then. Um, oh, that's a good point.
2: You're right. You make a good point there. Yeah.
1: Well, and there's and even to this. There's no time, but there's a fantastic story you can look up about Robert Foxworthy his dual roles on Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine, and what J. Michael Straczynski, the showrunner of Babylon 5, did when he found out that he had essentially ditched Babylon 5 in order to be on DS9. As
2: pretty much exactly the same character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. And I, agree. I wish we did have time, because it's a great story, but yeah, look it up.
1: <laughs>
4: oh, no, I'll definitely Google
2: yeah.
1: that later. <laughs> Uh, Alright, if that's uh, data lore we've kind of talked through, um, we've got the weird, reverse, misogyny, boring episode, which is mostly notable for Riker's outfit. Um, We've got an episode that there's too short a season, which I kind of vibe with, but most people don't like because nothing happens happens
2: in it. it. I'm I'm actually with you on this one. That, for me, is a highlight of season one, and I've never quite gotten all the vitriol. Or I should say apathy. It's not so much vitriol. All the apathy for that episode. I, I, I enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. And it's largely because I, I really enjoy his performance as the aging admiral. Or the de-aging admiral, as the case
1: may be. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Um, and like I said, it does kind of vibe with me. But I, I, I can't answer any of the complaints. Um, because really very little uh, engages or challenges our main characters in that episode. So I figured we probably wouldn't spend too much time on it, but you know if it if a, if a treatise on aging that is wrapped up by a somewhat perfunctory phaser battle is your cup of tea, I recommend, mm-hmm, it. I recommend it I mean uh, the, one, the
4: one thing I will say about that episode is that the um the sort of elderly admiral makeup is um not not great
2: yeah well, I mean that's also you know we're, we're talking about uh 1988 <laughs> there, oh, yeah, there's yeah, been great advances really since then
1: it's interesting in an abstract artistic sort of way like it's realistic in the way that kermit the frog is realistic as in it's not but you understand what it's communicating
2: it is funny though that he like... he goes from being a so relatively cool. handsome uh man to being a very strange looking man in only a few years <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah and it's like i think obviously you can talk about like it being of its time but i think obviously it's not like this example isn't necessarily aging as much but you look at episodes yeah. uh from the like Oh, what's the episode called? The one from the original series. Um, the Deadly Years. Deadly Years, that's the one. And like, that, that was 20 years earlier and far more realistic looking, I think. So also, uh, yeah, also I have, have to agree on that. Age.
2: They did a better job on that. And they also did a better job um, in season two of Next Generation, which obviously is not this, this, uh, this, this no. pod- podcast. <laughs> uh,
1: then there was When the Bow Breaks, which is mostly uh, weird, arbitrary cruelty to children. Yeah, that episode
2: is just, wow, I,
1: I yeah. I mostly I most... remember it because it was the episode that LeVar Burton shot his uh, Reading Rainbow Star Trek episode on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was fascinating that, you know, I had, you know, as a child, I sort of understood the concept of actors, but it was interesting to me that LeVar Burton was aware of playing different characters on two different shows at the same time. Um, so that was weirdly yeah, we formative, that formative for me. For me. <laughs> I'll be honest as
4: well, as we get into this back end of the season, this is the point where I've had to um, had to like, get my web browser open and double-checking which episode is which. <laughs> <laughs> the episode titles don't give away much about
2: what they're about. Oh, definitely not. When the barrel Breaks uh, the is a weird bell. one, Yeah, it, because it, it, their idea is that they steal the Enterprise's children, and we've seen in previous episodes, there are a lot of children, but they take six. So, yeah, just because you can't have you know forty or fifty kids in a room, it, it, it there's logistical challenges and cost problems, and uh, and frankly, it would have been a nightmare. Okay. <laughs> but you, I like I like how you described it about cruelty to children because here's this supposedly advanced and and and. Um, well learned race who have the best intentions, you know, uh, in, in in when they do this. But what they do is abduct children and act completely clueless about the fact that they don't want to be there, which makes them remarkably stupid people. And it's so so, it doesn't really make sense. Plus, they abduct Wesley, uh, and and like and toddlers. Like it's a it's a very strange combination of people that they chose to take.
1: So in Season 2, they really lean more into Wesley as a young man, rather than in Season 1, they lean into Wesley as a boy, and it is infinitely better for the character.
4: I, I think that what you touched on there, though, as well, about sort of this very advanced race, who, in the end, are just ridiculously stupid.
1: Well, it reminds um, me, actually, of the brilliant sort of saving throw at the end of the cage, where it's a it's a neat piece of writing where the humans you know overpower the Telosians, but also at the same time the Telosians realize that what they're doing would never work, and so it's a nice sleight of hand that makes everybody seem, seem smart, smart at, the, at end. the end.
2: Yeah, and it works there, but not here because uh, because these people are too stupid to realize what what they've attempted here is a bad plan.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think
2: that that
4: concept of these people who are advanced but too stupid is something that I think we. you you do see quite a bit of in Trek at the very least in what I've seen so far because I I mean the the immediate thought that comes to mind when sort of comparing this is something like Plato's Stepchildren it is very much a race that's supposedly so advanced but they've gone too far almost and they don't know anything anymore because they've got everything
2: laid out before them and next generation will do it again too I might add I it's a very tricky
1: concept, just not well executed. Yeah, that's true, because
2: there are episodes where it
1: is well executed, you're right, and this is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the sin, I, I call it sort of the Voyager sin, where when you have the formula, but nothing beyond that, it just all blurs together. Uh, anyway, uh... Home Soil next, which I'm probably fonder of than it deserves, but it's got a really memorable uh, antagonist. Well, really, two antagonists. um, And it really shows us how terraforming kind of works in the Federation. It Uh, also has the best
2: line of the first season. Yes! The most quotable (laughs) line. Ugly bags of mostly water. You know, it's it's the most quotable thing, you know, it's great. (laughs)
1: And just the idea that it declares a ceasefire because they turn down the lights in the room, yeah. there's a just lot to, to like
2: the... about this episode as dumb and boring as it is. It's surprisingly <laughs> fun, yeah,
1: yeah, it's a problem of of strong concept, not well paced. Yes. And so again, I would say it's an example of the the growing pains that we're experiencing,
2: but you know, you oh. mentioned the um the the terraforming aspect. And to me, what makes this episode interesting is that, this wouldn't, you know, if you look at when this came out, it was only a few years after Star Trek II, and the, uh, you know, so Genesis was still in our head. Now a few years after Star Trek III, so Genesis was, uh, was still in our heads at the time, pretty prominently, because we'd seen it just a few years back on the screen, and here we got to see the way terraformers work, and um, and so I think that that's an episode that may have actually worked better when it aired than now. <laughs> Uh, because at this point it's like you know it's who's thinking about Genesis anymore in Star Trek? It's such an old, old you know footnote almost. And uh, but then you get characters like Mannheim and and I, I hate to not man I'm i I'm I'm, 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 I'm I'm totally conflating two episodes here. Well, the, the terraformer characters uh, I actually really enjoy them more than I enjoy the the, the execution of the episode um seeing the, the 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 disparate personalities between this grumpy man who really has lacks social skills and this bright-eyed person who really loves her work to me it's it, it it works
1: that's so interesting that you mentioned that because it's sort of the like the the reverse world building or the world building by by omission that uh tng is doing as kind of Jean's personal fiefdom at this moment in time he's kind of implicitly ditching certain movie plot devices like the genesis device and the Trans Warp. you know they don't develop into anything they're just sort of like stillborn in the 23rd century and for better or for worse it it really solidifies a status quo
2: see i like that i like the idea that there are going to be false starts in the 23rd century that they they didn't work but once that innovation was made, Starfleet keeps looking into them. So things like transwarp and terraforming become a thing the next century. Yeah, I like that idea. You're right. It's reverse world building.
1: Uh, So coming of age, I think Sam wanted to talk about, because aside from like one or two moments, I really don't have much to say about this episode. It's more... uh, Wesley is the chosen one but not chosen enough to actually I leave the cast, the cast yet. yet. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's a good description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was, was this was... one
4: like I, was... I honestly can't remember at this point. <laughs> um Yeah, I I I mean this was it, it's not the best episode, it's not the worst episode, it's just kind of there. I think I appreciate it for sort of well, as close as you can come to calling anything in season 1 a season arc it sort of picks up from here which is, is nice to see it it sort of ties in a bit more with uh, the stuff with Remick and that but yeah I, I think I, I agree there's not a huge amount necessarily to say on this one
2: one of the things I do like about it is the um, is uh, the, car- the introduction of the Benzites I find them to be a fun species
4: I do agree with that although I did just ha- watch which episode was it I watched recently that was the Better second by appearance by... of them
1: sorry? Matter, of, Matter Honor. of Honor. Matter
4: of Honor, that's the one. with the sec- And mm-hmm. the, the Benzite in that episode is infuriatingly... Yeah, in yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's one of those
2: examples of... You know how the Ferengi, where the idea was to introduce something truly alien, a species entirely built on the concept of caveat emptor, and the exclusion of all else, and it didn't work until they toned that down. I think what happened with the second Benzite was that, that they, they tried too hard to introduce an alien value system. And yeah. it just made him kind of look like a moron, which, which, which happens a lot in these early seasons, which, you know, due to, due to growing pains on any TV show. It probably happened on Growing Pains, in fact.
4: <laughs> yes.
2: By the way, I do have one thing I wanted to say about this one episode. Is You guys may not realize it, but um, Tasia Valenza, who played Tashanik, has actually been on Star Trek Discovery she's the voice oh, oh, of the oh. she's the voice of the
1: USS shenzo oh yeah
2: and and yeah, she's yeah so she's um uh she's also been in other shows she's actually the one side actor in that episode who had who you know st- stood out in having a career because she's been on many shows since then
4: which is quite funny because when i watched that episode the first thing i said when she sort of said goodbye to wesley was i guarantee we're never seeing her again
2: yeah and yet there you go so she's on she's on discovery <laughs>
4: There you go. (laughs) Next
2: is
1: Heart of Glory, which I unironically like and enjoy, and I think it's incredibly important for the character of Worf.
4: I completely agree on that. I was just going to say it's very much it's the first occurrence of him actually getting some sort of formative character, rather than just being the odd one out in the background.
2: I would, I would go so far as to call it one of the very best episodes of Season 1. Oh, yeah. oh easily. Yeah, easily. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay. Possibly one of the top three. It's, a, it's such a standout on every level, right? Because the cast has great stuff to do. This the, the, these two the, These two Klingon characters are extraordinary. The premise is interesting. There's a genuinely tense plot. The escape from the cell doesn't make people look stupid, like sometimes happens. There's just so much. the the the, the uh, It was the show's real beginning of its exploration of 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 Klingons as, as something other than just a bunch of murderers, and um, and it, it it works so well for me.
1: It, it, it and you know, and I don't want to like knock anybody, but like it's pretty unusual for an episode in this series in general to have really standout direction, and I think that's what's happening here. All the the camera choices and and. All that stuff that I don't really know how to describe properly, but like it's, like it's probably closer to feature film feeling yes, than almost is. any other, other episode. episode.
2: I remember when this, uh, you know, back I was in college when this show aired because because I'm an old man, and I can remember watching each episode and and most of the time going, I, I enjoyed this but I'm waiting for it to really thrill me. I, I, I know this show can do it. I'm waiting. It hasn't done it again this week. And there were a couple of times like where no, where no one has gone before and uh, the big goodbye and 11001001, the episode title Sam Loves to Say. You know, There were a couple of times where I went, ooh, you got there. But Heart of Glory, I think, if I remember correctly, is the first time where I just went, I freaking loved that. I, I, and I think yeah. that was the first time I finally said it. Well, I, I think it's all the more
1: it. interesting because I think the, the first act, honestly, is almost unacceptably weak. Um, it's just like this weird show-and-tell visor game, and then everything blows up. But as soon as... I forgot about the visor thing, you're right. Yeah. As soon as you get back on the ship, the electricity that Michael Dorn, who, you know as we know, was not very experienced at this point... Um, has with the guest stars, and, you know, Vaughn Armstrong is the lead Klingon, of course, is a fantastic character actor, who we'll see again. Um, really, both of those actors were perfectly chosen for their roles. when they're taunting
2: him about, you know, about, about it not being a Klingon, it's brilliant.
1: Well, I think the key choice that gets made here, almost before anyone realizes it, is that Worf is trying to be the ideal Klingon. Um, And that means something very specific to him, and it honestly befuddles most, like, mainstream Klingons, because Worf is, like, going full Paladin. Um, And it's exactly that sense of honor that has him in Starfleet, because Starfleet uh, saved his life. Um, and most Klingons would never take that kind of obligation that far. And the, the bond between Worf and these Klingon like frat bros, basically, um, is deeper than the bond that the Klingon captain has with either of them because they're also trying to be this like pure Klingon warrior culture thing. And it really falls apart because Worf has internalized also the humanitarian values of the Federation, And that final speech he gives to Chorus in engineering, I feel like, you know, it hasn't quite taken off, but like, I feel like that could be almost like a mimetic description of like, go to therapy, but in a good way. (laughs) The idea of the internal struggle being absolutely no less relevant and noble than external struggles. So you don't have to go picking fights with other people to validate your existence. yeah, it just always gets, gets me in the me right, in the right place. place.
2: He basically summed up the concept of martial arts. If you learn martial arts really well, you can kill someone, and you never should.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's so interesting because because um, Dan Curry um, had such an influence on on Worf. On Worf's character, kind of indirectly. So he was—he was a visual effects guy, but I guess they also discovered he was a martial arts expert, and they eventually had him design all of the Klingon weapons and martial arts. And there are scenes in later seasons where Worf is is teaching martial arts to the crew, and that's a, an interesting—an uh, interesting spot there.
2: Uh, I'd actually, I'd be interested in hearing your your thoughts on this, Sam, everything we're saying, because I I consider this one a standout, and so I was really enjoying reading your commentary on Twitter, uh, especially when you hit the episodes that everybody loves, like this one.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree. This is easily one of the best ones of the season. I think, I I mean, part of that is going to be skewed because I love the concept of Warp as a character, and I know some some amount of what he's like in the future, so having this development for him is is just really great to see. But it like I what Patrick was touching on about this whole sort of dichotomy between Worf, who's never lived with Klingons but has this ideal idealistic view of how he should be and how they should be, versus these Klingons who are maybe less sort of bound to how a Klingon should be, so to speak. It, it, it's a really interesting dynamic, for sure.
2: It's also a, a sad statement on the nature of people in general, because when you consider that the treaty was signed in Star Trek VI, and this is a long time after that, the fact that there are still so many Klingons who hate the idea that they uh, are allied with the, with the Federation is really a, a very sobering statement on our relations with other countries.
4: Absolutely, and I think that sort of cut, obviously this is not this season, but I've got a bit of the way mm-hmm. into season two now, and that definitely sort of comes through a lot in episodes like yeah. Matter of Honor. I, exactly, well, it's, uh, yeah. It's, like, it's a it recurring is, it is. theme, in
1: fact. <laughs> to, to be fair, it's a bit fuzzy in TNG um, when exactly the peace treaty happened, um, until it's decided, you know, basically when they broke Star Trek Six. okay, this is when it's going to happen and the original crew's going to be involved like, the whole plot of Yesterday's Enterprise, which is one of my favorite episodes ever, probably wouldn't have occurred if they'd had a clearer idea of when and what the Kittimer Treaty was at that time. It's true, it's true.
2: This is a case of something retroactively creating problems.
1: Uh, however, of course, another retcon, though, that they did was that Klingons can live for 100, 150 years, so it totally makes sense for these grudges to be to be held over. They only decided that so they could use the Klingon captains in Deep Space Nine, but whatever. And then, speaking of retcons, um, it's only clear retroactively, and then maybe secondary media will pick this up. But the guys in Heart of Glory really remind me of the um, Klingon revanchists who are so important in the early part of Discovery. Like, literally the first scene of Discovery having to do with a Klingon sect that really reminds me of these guys.
2: I like that idea. I would like to see them pick that up, yeah. So I think we yeah, all agree that of "Heart of Glory" movie. is really one of the moments of the first season that pretty much guaranteed this show was going to keep going.
1: "Heart of Glory" is a self-descriptive title. Yes, <laughs> yes.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, I mean, there's there's a few good episodes in season one. I mean, we used to sort of debate. Obviously, Patrick said not so keen on Daedalore, I think it's quite a good one. I've got a soft spot for uh, "Skin of Evil," even though it's a bit stupid but I think I think Heart of Glory is the episode, or at least one of very few episodes that I think most people would agree is a standout for, for that series.
2: Yeah, I mean, out of 26, there are probably five or six that a lot of fans would go, well, that was really good. That's not a good track record, but- No, it's not. Yeah, but it's, it, what I like about this show, loved it back in the 80s and still feel the same way, is that even the bad ones are enjoyable. There aren't that many where you go, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, and for a show that was coming back after 20 years and had a lot of, had a, had a, faced struggles in doing so and faced the problem of, and I say this with no disrespect to Gene Roddenberry, who, who I think was amazing, but he was trying too hard to impose a lack of Um, any lack of conflict between crew members, and it created for that first season um, a bit of a blandness that the show did brilliantly overcome. But that first season faced a number of struggles, and then the second season faced a writer's strike, so those first two seasons, it's amazing that we ended up with seasons three through seven, and then the rest of the franchise. But but I'm glad we did because, but it, it, even in retro retroactively, I can watch these first two seasons and enjoy things that I thought were pretty crappy. Like I I don't like Angel One, uh, and I don't like Code of Honor. But other than those two, uh, you know, because one is in just astoundingly sexist, and the other one astoundingly racist. But other than those two, I can watch most episodes of season one and smoke.
4: Actually, I mean, this is something that I think I said. Back at the very beginning of the first half of recording, this was something that surprised me more than anything going into this. Was like given the series one and two reputation, was how much I was enjoying watching it. Well, I, I can have readily admit that a lot of season one is not good. Yeah, a lot but it's of it's fun.
2: Symbiosis comes to mind. It's one of those episodes where you go, "Well, that was mind-numbingly stupid," and I was still <laughs> inter- I was still entertained, you know.
1: Well, okay. Exactly. Let's not skip over Arsenal of Freedom, which is a personal, a personal highlight to me. Um, it's it's almost a perfect example of what uh, showrunners, I believe, call a run and jump, where it's just like, okay, we need we need an episode that's just action beats, and then you know we've got kind of a kind of a Star Trek moral to hang it on and tie it up. But basically, it's just about you know putting our characters in danger and having them overcome it, and it's just a wholesome good time.
2: It, the the um the character of the uh, the, the uh, I forget what they call him the weapons dealer uh, is just one of the most giddy fun characters to come out of this first season. It, well, he's played by one of the great absolutely, character actors. yeah, yeah. He's he's wonderful. He he throws himself into it like he does in everything. He's the best. He's one of the few reasons why I would watch the movie Ghost, for example. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he's just fun, and, uh, and, and, and okay, yes, the, the scenes between Picard and, and, and Beverly, you know, are a little, little sappy, because they were, they were trying to build a romance, they never, you know, really were willing to let materialize, but, uh, but it, was, it, it, it worked in the concept, in, in, in the context rather, of this otherwise really good episode.
1: And well, the, yes. the space combat in particular draws my attention because it's such a, a strange time capsule of what they thought the show was going to be. You know, what with the saucer separating and having a, a chief of engineer as a non-regular and then leaning into the whole, Jordy flies the ship even though he's blind kind of thing. All of this is is stuff that that feels that feels stillborn as far as concepts of the show. It's just they were not taken further after that. Um, but then ironically, the one thing that does is putting Worf at tactical, uh, where he you know he did not occupy most of the time because of Tasha. But then in this you know in this episode he's there and it's like oh he was born to do that.
2: Yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's. The you know was it because they knew that uh, that Denise Crosby was leaving at this point? I don't know. I I don't know the timeline on that. But um, or was it just amazing happenstance? I'm not sure which.
1: I mean, it could be either because you know Worf's whole thing was was rotating between stations, um, and since you know since the the show is built around having people go to the planet and stay on the bridge, it wasn't a bad concept for him. And they also, you know, might have thought uh, security was a little obvious, who knows, but regardless, you know, everything kind of ends up working out in that particular way.
2: You know, one of the things that's interesting, you talked about discarded concepts, and uh... If you look at Jordy and Worf in Season 1, um, one of them is piloting the ship and the other is going to every single station he can get to. And, as of Season 2, they're in very different positions, and uh... But I like that. I, I like the idea that there's growth, you know, and, and it's one of the things that makes it fun to watch season one after you've seen everything else is seeing these two junior officers in roles that are unlike what they have the rest of the show.
1: Yes, well, and it goes to what I was saying of, uh, in the in the previous uh, segment or the first half about the, the novelty of season one being something compelling if you grew up with the other part of the show.
4: I think as well. Uh, we'll try and move on in a moment because we've got a couple of episodes left to get through. Yeah. But um, I think something something that's worth mentioning here, and obviously this is something that you guys might understand more than me because I've not been able to see the newer stuff. But I do see a lot of sort of tweets about them, and something that sort of speaks of even though the early seasons of TNG and particularly TNG season one have this reputation, they do still have such a legacy because I mean you look at shows that are airing now like Lower Decks and there's so many references to this. Obviously you have, um, again, I've not seen the episodes, but I've seen a lot of it on Twitter, the stuff uh, with Armus from Skin mm-hmm. of Evil. There's, um, yeah, yeah. from what I understand, and again, obviously, like I said, I've not seen the episode. So there was... was uh, it was hilarious. Stuff in the <laughs> it most episode. There was nothing short of hilarious. No, I'm sure. But then from what I from what I understand as well, there was stuff in, a, in the most recent episode with... Uh, drones that look very similar to the ones from Arsenal of Freedom. Damn it, you With beat it. me to it. I, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, was, I was actually
2: just going to say, speaking of lower decks <laughs> yes, yeah, that was one of yeah, my like, favorite like... moments in the most recent one when, when, when what appeared to be a fleet of Arsenal of Freedom drones showed up. I just lost it. That was I oh, love no, no, when no. they just oh, missed that, that part. part. Yeah, it but was it, really it, funny.
4: It speaks to the legacy of even though this series has its reputation, just how important. Every bit of Star Trek is to the franchise that it all gets referenced. And obviously, Lower Decks is renowned particularly for this. But well, the amount of referencing in the, yes, this isn't glossed over or forgotten about as the as the bad era. It's still <laughs> very important to the franchise.
1: Well, to pl- to play a little bit of yes and, um, I don't think I don't you think get you Lower Decks lower without, without two cultural three, shifts. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, uh, wikis. Wiki. And two, yeah. <laughs> streaming, um, because, it's, because so it's so much easier, and you can see—you know—hundreds of people are doing this. You know, you not least among them. Um, but, but streaming is allowing people to revisit all these at their own pace, whereas it used to be. You know, season one probably had kind of a dim reputation because if it's cycling up on reruns. And by the way, a lot of rerun packages basically dropped Season 1. I don't know if it was because people were writing letters and they didn't like it or what. But if it did cycle up, you got a random Season 1 episode, you know, throw a dart at the board, your odds are not great. So Plus a lot of
2: rerun packages aired them out of order.
1: Yeah, so you get this, this almost like... There's, there's almost, almost un- un- people, people revisiting, revisiting them at their, them at their own, own pace, pace, of course, course and, and, and deliberately are going to find so much, so much more, more to to enjoy, to enjoy there. there.
2: I very much agree with you. I, I think Lower Decks, um, I'm very glad. I love Lower Decks. I un- un- unabashedly love the show, and See. I'm glad it exists, but I think that ten years ago it would not have happened.
1: Absolutely, Absolutely not. not. Not even
4: Not I will say I'm definitely
2: looking forward to getting to the point of watching it, because it, it seems very much like the sort of show I'd enjoy. It's it's really funny, and, and, and it, it one of the things... Sometimes a lot of people will say it takes it too far, and only a few times have I thought that they've taken the, the, the jokes too far in terms of references. Sometimes, like, it seems like it, it seems like the cast of Lower Decks have actually watched Star Trek The Next Generation, because the jokes <laughs> are so specific that you go, how the hell did you... Um, but, um... But putting that aside, I really get a kick out of things like seeing Armus come back. I'm sorry that that was ruined for you. I I, I, I I just cracked up when that happened, and it's a shame that you'll know going in that that's going to happen.
1: Well, okay, that's on me, that's my fault. Um, I, I had to tell her because we had just watched and discussed Skin of Evil, and then this happened, and I almost jumped out of my skin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I, I did see it from other people as well, like, even if you hadn't mentioned it, but I... A, I have the memory of a goldfish, so I'll probably forget (laughs) by then. And B, I don't, I don't mind it too much because I'm I'm still going to enjoy the episode.
1: Yeah, it's not a plot point. And and then I will say, you know, about lower decks, like it's there's something on TV (laughs) tropes called the rule of funny, and you have to understand it's a sitcom. It's going to run on rule of funny, and like, yes, it's part of the same canon as Star Trek Discovery, but it doesn't have to be the same tone. You know, if they ever crossed over the two franchises, which they never have to do, but if they did, they would harmonize it and make it work. But for now, you know, who gives a crap?
0: Well, I did see, I did see a rumor. I'm this is off tangent slightly, so I might cut this bit out. But um, I did see a rumor recently that um, because I don't, I'm guessing at least Patrick will have seen, and I think Rich, you're into Doctor Who as well, aren't you? Russell T Davies coming back to the franchise. Um, There, uh, there was a lot of rumors about. Uh, sort of a crossover between Doctor Who and Star Trek because that was one thing he really wanted to do when he rebooted the franchise. And then obviously Enterprise got cancelled mm. just before he could. Um, but there was a lot of talk about whether there could be a sort of Doctor Who Lower Decks Dex crossover.
2: Oh, that would be fun. I, you Which know, says, I'm, I'm in be, general not a fan of crossovers, um, but I am a fan of Star Trek comics and the one crossover that I thought worked brilliantly was yes. Assimilation yes. Squared. And it yeah, worked I, remarkably well because both are, both shows... Are about characters in a vessel that can traverse space and time, and so it it uh it worked a lot better than say, um you know the Star Trek crew uh, being in a story that involves the Ghostbusters, for example, and so uh, I wouldn't mind it. I'm as a non-crossover fan, I would genuinely like to see a Doctor Who crossover. I think that
0: okay. I, I am absolutely desperate to come to find a copy of *Assimilation Squad and it's bloody right, expensive.
1: Well, I'm glad you didn't diss the uh, *Star Trek* Transformers comic because that was brilliant and it was brilliant by specifically using the Trek animated series style. Yes. No, I totally right. agree
2: with you. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would, <laughs> but but yes. <laughs>
0: But I mean, as far as I'm well, I'm guessing you all know Rich. But as far as I'm aware, um, the the Simulation Square never ended up in the graphic novels, did it?
2: You know, in the, the sad thing uh, is that when it was cancelled, um, I was really hoping to get it in the next group of twenty volumes, and and it, right. did, it didn't happen. It right. didn't happen because of two things. We didn't have the next group of twenty volumes, which is the big one, and uh, and I, from what I understand, um, there there was. Uh, some resistance to putting it in. Now, as far as I'm concerned, resistance is futile.
1: Well, yeah. we already mentioned how y'all don't really like symbiosis, and I think it's kind of just pleasantly mediocre. And we already talked the hell off of Skin of Evil, so maybe we can just hit the post-Tasha month? Yeah, the there's only three. Well, there is one thing worth
2: mentioning about symbiosis, and that is it, it, That is that it it, um, it brings back um, Merritt Buttrick and Judson Scott from the films. Um, yeah, that that that's that's the one thing that I think makes it stand out, and that's about it.
1: <laughs> strange coincidence there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It also yeah, has yeah, one of the one of the dumbest, dumbest anti-drug, anti-drug speeches ever ever given to a teenager <laughs> on screen.
1: I feel strange, but also good.
2: <laughs> okay, there's that actually <laughs> might be the dumbest. Yes. Okay, so the second dumbest then. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs>
0: But yeah, um, I mean the next one we have, we have to talk about then is we, uh, we'll always have Paris, which um,
2: I don't know if either of you have anything to say about this one in particular. I I quite enjoyed it. I you know I it's interesting because it, it, start time travel or time ripples have become a big thing in Star Trek. It, it, not not so much in that season there, but later on and. This is one of the next generation's early uses of the uh, manipulations of time, and I don't think it's bad. I think there's a lot better ones coming. But I, um, the character, the character of Janice, the exploration of, of Picard's former love life, I actually quite enjoyed. And normally that, that can be iffy when it comes to Star Trek, but I thought that worked really well. I was, I was actually about to say the exact same thing. I think yeah. the sort of the a plot is
0: fine. It, it is what it is. But I think the sort of exploration of Picard's Personality and in his past, I, 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 think I think it
2: worked really well. Yeah, and it's and you know when you consider that um, that uh, that she's played by um, um, Michelle Phillips from Mamas and the Papas, that's actually really quite extraordinary.
1: <laughs> yeah. this one's kind of a miss for me. You know, there's no accounting for taste. There's nothing really wrong with it, it; just didn't speak to me. Um, the two, a couple things I could talk about is, one, the the time travel mechanic got a shout-out in the game uh, Star Trek Armada, where the uh, the Mannheim effect, or whatever it's called, is a, a power-up that you can use to uh, to double your starship and get double the firepower, which is pretty cute. I did, as a
2: non-gamer, I didn't know that, but I think that's great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's,
1: it's very, very cute. Um, the other thing is... There, this episode, I feel like, has a bit in common with the Season 2 episode, Time Squared. And in both of them, you know, time travel is really is this, this terrifying thing. It's out of your control. You can't really comprehend it. It's, it's like cosmic horror time travel. Um, and I really like the idea of that, especially since, you know, both previously and subsequently, you know, time travel becomes sort of a more pedestrian uh, plot device in Star Trek. Again, I really like the idea of it, but I don't actually like either of the episodes. So that leaves me in a strange, in a strange place. place. The execution
2: of the of the of the ripples in time is not the best. But I agree with you that the concept of them is.
0: Yeah, I think I yeah. I I don't really have anything else to sort of say. I, I agree very much that it's an interesting concept, not necessarily uh not necessarily done as well as it could have been.
2: Um, So that just leaves us with two episodes at the end of the season, one of which is is considered one of Next Generation's um, most uh, most interesting.
1: Yeah, Conspiracy, if we had the run and jump action, this is sort of the uh, the, the horror slash, well, almost really, it's a political thriller that becomes horror, which is obviously a really neat thing um, and a cool change of pace. I think even with some clearly very severe budget limitations yeah. they did a decent job of of capturing kind of the uh, the expansiveness of the threat um it really um, leans on uh the groundwork that we briefly mentioned in coming of age um that you know i remember you yeah, know there's a little bit of disappointment that it doesn't it doesn't amount to more um and there's definitely you can imagine a version of star trek so um i've talked about this trivia a little bit more on the live tweets but there was always this idea, um, I think, at least as early as the Ferengi not working out, or maybe even previous to that, that they wanted to have a, an alien threat that represented kind of the, ex- the excessive uh, version, like the excessive fear of communism, as being something that would stamp out all your individuality, like a cartoon version of communism. And again, you know, not to necessarily speak to any real threat, but to the fears of the people watching. Um, and you see these little seeds, like the idea was there was going to be an insectoid race, like a hive mind. And there you see these little seeds, like the Harada, that are mentioned uh, in the big goodbye, and I think in one or two other episodes. Um, and then these these bug creatures in conspiracy. Um, the idea was that, and then you know, in the neutral zone, in the very next episode, the destroyed colony all these were story threads that potentially were going to weave together into our, our big, big, big threat. threat which but it became kind of a goal. different
2: threat entirely. Yeah.
1: yeah, which this is kind of Maurice Hurley's uh, master plan for what it's worth. And, and eventually that, that became the Borg, which, you know, it became a technological commentary instead of an, an insectoid like a Starship Troopers kind of thing. And so some of the story threads, they, you know, wound up going into the Borg, and some of them pretty much end right here in conspiracy. And so it's an interesting idea of uh, what might have been. The, um,
2: the, uh, one of the things that, that gets changed, of course, is that the Borg are not insectile, but the hive mind is retained.
1: And that was budget, really. Yeah. Then. <laughs> that's, that's why that change was made.
2: The, um, one of the things that I, uh, I, I regretted, I regretted that they didn't ever bring back the parasites, despite the, the, the signal at the end. But for those who read the comics, they'll know that that, there have been sequels that have revisited them, and they're actually quite good.
1: I I haven't read them, but I've become aware that the the novel-verse, which was kind of this expanded version of canon for quite a while, um, they seized on these parasites and also certain inconsistencies that we're going to develop later with a race called the Trill, and uh, wove that together into a whole big crazy conspiracy, which, you know makes sense but but you know i i honestly think this episode just works fine in isolation you know maybe they're going to come back in 500 years who knows who cares but um you know it's just a uh, you get a little bit of that seven days in may feel where you know you get a warning and then suddenly they blow up like the 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 trek equivalent of a car bomb um <laughs> and then i i appreciate that the Star Trek-Picard solution is literally just to fly to Earth and ask him what the hell's going on. Yeah. yeah. It really, you know, it really cuts to the point, you know, you kind of see him, you kind of see him panic a little and make mistakes. And then there's the infamous, like, gory takedown at the end. And my, my favorite story about that is they, um, they, they were worried that they were going too far. Um, and so they pre-screened the episode for one of the producer's, like, like seven- or eight-year-old kid. And they had him watch the episode, and he didn't say anything. And they asked him, oh, well, what did you like about that? And he said, the best part was when the guy's head blew off, so they kept it.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. Sam, you might appreciate this. One of the things that... Um... One of the without knowing what comes later. One of the things that I, I really like about this episode is that it's one of the few times in season one where characters from previous episodes returned, and it, yeah. uh, it started showing that this is in fact um, a bigger a, a bigger um, universe than just the, the, the main characters.
0: No, absolutely. I think I said on the um on the commentary track that me and Patrick called yesterday that something that I picked up a lot with TNG is how much more of a u- lived-in universe it feels compared to the original series being more standalone episodes for the most part
2: sure because of the original series we had Kevin Riley and you know characters like DeSalle, but for the most part um, no one else mattered other than no. the main seven and occasionally Rand and Chapel and once in a while Kyle whereas on this show we start seeing characters show up on a pretty frequent basis. Uh, not in season one, of course, but Remick and Quinn coming back, I could tell you as someone who watched it originally, that was a big thing. Because they're like, oh, they're actually revisiting... Um, and they're taking two of the only reasons to, that, that you really want to watch *Coming of Age* anyway, Remy and Quinn, and, uh, and 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 coming back to the idea that they were investigating a conspiracy. That's really fascinating, and it it it, uh, it showed that the show was willing to do world building beyond just the main characters, and and it becomes a very staple part of Trek in general, but of also *Next Generation*.
1: It's a pretty obvious move, but it still enhances *Coming of Age* to realize that, that Remick was the center. It's yeah. such a great, like, little role he gave himself, uh, controlling the opposition, as it were. Remick,
2: Remick is, is surprisingly a, a, a complex character. You wouldn't know it from the first time you meet him. But he, but he retroactively becomes really interesting.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think mean, we'll, we'll, we'll try and wrap up, because we are getting on a
2: bit now. Um, well, we just have one, one left, on. so it's okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Um, and I might, I, this might be a slightly controversial opinion, but I, the Neutral Zone to me feels more like an epilogue than an actual episode.
3: Hmm.
0: To me, it, it's, it's the season wrapping up, setting up something to happen in the future. Nothing really happens. It's I go wrong with it. Like,
2: I would agree with there's, you. There's, there's because just it, of, it basically, you know, we'll, be, you, know, you know, we're back. <laughs> like that's yeah. basically what, you know, you're, yeah, you're going to start seeing Romulans now. The, the truth is, the, um, the the three humans that they meet are just, they're not overly interesting, other than Sonny Clemens, who I think is hilarious. Uh, the other two, oh, yeah. you know, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I'm willing to bet that tons of people, once streaming happened, looked up what the hell a low-mileage Pit woofy is.
3: <laughs> no,
2: absolutely. But that character's funny, the other two just not.
0: I, do, I think, the. I can't remember their names, I'll admit, but I think the the woman in that, like, it, it's an interesting concept of this sort of fish-out-of-water-stuck-centuries-from-where-where-you-belong type thing. I think it's an interesting concept. They don't do enough with it, I don't think.
2: I, I do think that Picard's condemnation of them is a little harsh. Yes, um, absolutely. It's the first thing that struck me when I watched it the first time. Here's three people who wake up hundreds of years in the future, and he's judging them almost immediately because they haven't acclimated almost immediately, and it's like think about it Like when they died, capitalism was the the, the the controlling force on Earth, and people had you know people tended to die somewhere between fifty and and eighty, and and uh, the vices were the way of the world. And he's upset that they still feel they, they're still expecting the world to be that way. Well. What does he think they're gonna be like? Well, they're getting dissed
1: before they even wake up by Beverly going, Oh, this is a... this is a fad. And like, they're... they're alive! They're in your sick bag!
2: I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that you're about to meet three people! From centuries ago, and you're being a dick, right? It's I mean, it's, it's surprising. It's a, a very not, in fact, I would go so far as to say it's not very Picard-like, and it it, it shows that even at the very end of season one, they had growing pains. I, think, I
1: think, it's, think it's 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 didactic because the decision I think was made at some point creatively that okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do to these guys what we tried to do with the Ferengi have this sort of sh- these straw men that we're gonna shoot down. But they they really push too far, like, these ideas that, you know, we're not going to be afraid of death in the future. Like, bullshit, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) But I think the main sin of this episode is it, 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 it teases us with these two enormous concepts. So, one, you know, people from our day and age interacting with the Star Trek cast. Like, you know, that's a well that they go back to, but it's never taken lightly. You know that's like Star Trek Four territory, um, so you've got all that, and then you've got this idea of teasing the the Romulans coming back and this big threat, and hey, we've got a new Romulan warbird model that we're going to show off for you, um, and these two things are, are enormous, and like clearly they're supposed to feel enormous because you know it's the end of the season, we're getting you hyped for the next season, maybe it was sweeps week, who knows, but then so little actually is done with any of it and it gets to the point where the the two most sort of memorable things that come off this episode is one you know the way the colony is destroyed gets called back later in a much better episode um you know as one of these these threats that end up coalescing into uh, into an arc uh and then second Uh, the fact that uh, they finally peg the uh, date on the uh, Gregorian calendar as being 2364, and that literally all of the rest of Star Trek dating conventions follows what was established in this episode, just working backward and forward.
2: It also, by the way, was the first episode to really showcase the talents of Marco Lamo. Who had well, previously yes, yes. been—I mean, you know—he had—he he, had been a, an Antikin, but I mean, it, there, that was such a minor character that uh, it, it, it's almost—and—and and he was in, you know, like white-haired dog makeup, so it's—it's—it it's, really <laughs> didn't give him much to do. Um, you know, he uh, as Tabak, hes hes menacing, and—and and, and I—I and I think that that might be the character that made them realize we need to make this guy a much bigger part of the universe.
1: Well, he's no Tomilak, but I get what you're saying.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, but then again, who is a Tomilak other than Jakar? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I did want to uh, bring up—I'm sure both of you know this already—and um, with this new format, I'm not doing the trivia section as much. But this is just one thing that really sort of interested me about this episode, and perhaps some of the listeners might not know already. But from what and again, this is based on what I've been told by the people. In fact, it might even have been Patrick who told me this. Um, but from what I understand, the original plan for this episode in terms of the people who were frozen was that one of them was going to be Harry Mudd. Yes. <laughs> which
2: just
0: baffles me. I mean, from, from what I understand, uh, Carmel was quite ill by this point, which is why it didn't happen.
2: Yeah, they and, um, and they were like, really determined to bring him back. And, that he w- and I don't remember if it was going to be this or in another episode he was going to sacrifice himself and, and, and to save the enterprise and say this one's for Kirk it was something like that oh
0: well, oh, i know he was he was also planned to be in i think it was
1: star trek IV. Uh,
2: he was going to be yeah. in the um, in the uh, senate scene the um yeah. the trial scene i mean the
1: trial yeah, yeah. I, mean, I really have a hard time imagining Gene signing off on that interesting <laughs> why so, why so? bound and determined not to not to reference the original series like that you know, that's why why Worf isn't in the series Bible, you know. Even though the pre gene Series Bible does have that idea of a Klingon on the Enterprise, um, he and yet his one of his
2: very first episodes was a sequel, uh, basically a, re, a a complete
1: rehash of the of the Naked Time. True, um, but but in in general, he you know he I think he was more prepared to recycle plots than concepts. Um, I think he had this idea of a very, like, broad strokes version of the Star Trek past. You know, I know he had to be, he had to be pushed into using the Klingons. He had to be pushed into using the Romulans. Um, and as late as Season 3, uh, where a certain character from the original series does return, um, a written reference to Spock in the script was changed at his behest to Sarek's son.
0: Right. Even then though, mine, you say that, but you do obviously you did have as brief as it was, the cameo from uh from uh McCoy. Um from DeForest Kelly. Well in, even in that I think
1: process. was something that kinda came together on on the set and was not even necessarily part of the original script. That's right. I, I can't prove that, but but that's my instinct. Um, I mean,
0: it it must have been planned some way in advance, just for the level of makeup that they put him in.
1: (laughs) Well, sure, sure. But I, you know, I think that was like his, there, there, and you know, this was also kind of a, it was toward the end of Gene's life, he had some self-contradictory impulses, but there was, the the writers at the time recall saying they were often discouraged from, from explicitly referencing original series concepts. I do think oh, okay. it's fascinating, the mystique of Mud having been literally the original series' only non-Starfleet recurring character. Um, and it's just fascinating how, how resolutely people wanted to, to bring him back and didn't succeed until, well, 2017. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I think that, that just about wraps it up. I
0: don't, if, unless either of you have any thoughts on sort of the series as a whole, quickly.
2: Like, my statement now? Yeah, I guess I have nothing. <laughs> I don't remember yeah, what it was. It, no. We
1: talked about it in a very, like, broad way. Like, I don't, I don't really have a thesis statement on season one that I haven't already said.
0: No, that's fair. Um, in that case, yeah, that was the first episode of this new, I guess what we can call season two of the podcast, so to speak. Okay. Um... This uh, new sort of format of the podcast obviously being made possible by the wonderful people over on Patreon who've su- who've been supported. The, uh, I'll try that Ooh. again. The wonderful people over on uh, Patreon who've been incredibly supportive of the project, including the uh, F- Lieutenant Commander and above tier members who get a shout out at the end of the podcast. Those being Andrew McGray, Joshua DeVries, Matthew Wolf Simon, Paul Stockton, and Rob Birch. Thank you very much to those people in particular and anyone else who's supporting on the podcast. And until next month, I have been Sam, or never underscore seen underscore
1: Trek. I'm Patrick, or on Twitter, and Gears42, often found commenting on uh, Sam's live tweets like a pilot fish.
2: (laughs) And I'm Rich, and I'm at richhansley.com.
1: And
0: did you have anything you wanted to plug quickly, Rich, before we finish, or...?
2: Um, well, I'm currently working on a, uh, another essay anthology for Sequart, uh, this time about um, the Stargate franchise. Uh, I'm working on a, um, a, a book that's not announced that I, has no publisher. <laughs> and uh, and I, uh, I write a weekly column for HeroCollector.com discussing uh, Star Trek comics in chronological order that's been going on about two years and is now about halfway through the IDW run.
0: I've, def- I've had a look at that. No, I've not read through it fully, but I have had a look at that and I do recommend uh, anyone listening go have a look because it's very interesting stuff. Um, but you're welcome. But until next time, thank you for listening. And that was season one of The Next Generation.